0: Rousseau is the, you know, the patron saint of saying, if you want to know how to live an authentic life, you must look. Forward. You gotta look inside yourself, and that, and nobody can tell you who you are. Only you can answer that question. That's just trash. It's not true. You have to have people telling you who you are. I mean, a young child, especially in the formative years. I mean, you don't know they don't know who they are. They need they need your help. Now, you don't tyrannically impose some complete, you know, vision that they have to conform to in every way, but in some but you are
1: you are leading them and you are showing them who they are. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host Nathan Rittenhouse and I'm your co-host Cameron McAllister. And if you haven't been following along with us for a while and you're just new to listening in on the types of shenanigans we get into, I'd like to introduce Cameron to you for a moment. So, while a hundred million people were watching the Super Bowl last night. The first thing that comes into Cameron's mind that he sends me this morning is a mere orthodoxy article. And so you're dealing with something special here when you're looking at Cameron, who maybe is outside the, I see that serious grin and nod there. Cameron don't can't recognize, don't him.
0: invite Cameron to parties is the
1: <laughs> takeaway. Or if you want to have a robust thought about cultural engagement, the state of the church Theological and spiritual questions, and what it means to be a young person today, and try to work out the future of how your faith relates to hope. And he's your guy, he's the go-to guy for that. So there's that. But uh, I'm not totally off the hook of being a little bit odd myself, and so I want to make a just a little. This is not the this is not the theme of the podcast today, but I want to make a little pitch here. Um, I think probably one of the most significant things in the history of sports or athletics globally happened yesterday. And most of you would rightly look at that and say, um, you know, this is a Super Bowl. Okay, we get it. We understand. Um, That's not what I'm talking about. Um, Mr. Kipton, Kelvin Kipton, was killed in a car crash yesterday. And when I say that, Cameron said, who? And Mm -hmm. that's right. He was the guy who just broke the world record in the marathon. He ran a marathon in two hours and 35 seconds which is over almost over a minute faster than it had ever been run before. And I mean, we're in the reign of Elliot Kitchogi, who is probably the best marathoner in the history of the world himself. And he was beaten by this guy, 24 years old. Um, widely thought he was going to be the first guy to run less under two hours in a legitimate race wife and two kids. He and his coach were both killed in a car crash. And some of you can say, Nathan, how could you possibly say that that was the biggest thing that happened in the sporting world yesterday when the Super Bowl was happening and i want to use this as a way of looking at um how we think about reality and what we focus on if if you want to look at like phenomenal athletes nfl football players are everybody on the plays at the nfl like it's a phenomenal i mean that's just a, a level of athleticism that's it's unparalleled in a lot of other ways um however there will be more super bowls there will be more people who are quarterbacks that win multiple super bowls the whole thing, it's all there. There will not be that many people in the history of the world who run a marathon in less than two hours. In fact, it's never happened. And so we were 35 seconds away from it happening for the first time. And when we talk about like American football, we're talking about one country. When we're talking about them, and we're also talking about one country for like, how, what's this, the 58th Super Bowl or something. The marathon has been run and raced and studied for nearly millennia now across all regions of the world it is the marathon is a much bigger deal than the, than the Super Bowl. there. I said it, I said that out loud, That's true. but yeah. that's not even true. Like Shut when up. I lived in England, I was blown away, like rugby, bigger than football globally, um, soccer, or as it's called football in the rest of the world, way bigger than football in the rest of the world. And so, uh, I'm not saying this to an intentionally, uh, you know, I'm not demeaning or disrespecting the athleticism of anybody involved in football, but if, the number of people who can go out and run a two hour marathon, that is a, that is a physiological miracle that's unparalleled anywhere Mm. in the world in any other sport, as far as I know. And so that's a loss. I mean, there's a, there's a sadness there for the, for the individual lives that were lost in that accident. And I'm sure there'll be more of a story unfolding around that, but um, it just struck me as, as a reminder of, (laughs) I think as, as Cameron put it, more people were curious about Taylor Swift watching Travis Kelsey than thinking, you know about the world record in the marathon. So, it's a it's a reminder of where we focus and what we choose to look at in life. That I, it's not an indictment either way because the things that are important to us are the things that are important to us. However, sometimes the things that are important to us, we wouldn't stress out about quite as much if we put them in the broader scope of of what's going on in the world. And with that set up, I want to hand it over to Cameron to introduce the actual topic for today.
0: Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about chronic self-consciousness. And that's I think a major factor actually in why we <laughs> As so
1: everybody afraid. has Cameron, and as everybody has.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, just sort of rushing right into it, but the as as context, I'm talking I'm giving two talks at a college up the road here. One on I think I'm talking about the two what I take to be the two dominant moods of our cultural moment confusion and fear i'll talk about confusion tomorrow actually well as of this recording and then next week lord willing i'll talk about fear but part of what i i take my takeaway as i worked on this talk and and did my research there's there's sort of i i can go on cameron autopilot and say well you know we're very afraid because we have these notions of control and now we're in this place this juncture at history where we have information overload, we're saturated with information from all around the world all the time, 24 seven, and it's confirming to us that we are not in control. I, that's true. And I do think that's a factor. Actually, I think it's a huge one. But more and more, what's what struck me as I've looked at not only some of the, the thinkers today and some of the studies, but as I've looked at some of the art that's coming out these days, particularly, I pay a lot of attention to movies and music. The only way I can put it is a phrase that comes to mind is that consciousness itself has become a major burden for a lot of people. The, the idea that, that you have self-awareness and you have a mind and that this mind is so self-aware, you're so filled with the knowledge, not only of what's going on, but all the bad things that could be happening. So this tends to lead to a massive sense of anxiety. I think a film title that encapsulates it is Everything Everywhere All at Once. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And it's sort of a, an example that I pull from our everyday lives is if you go out into a public space, let's say it's, it's a gym or an airport. These are two really good examples. To be in a gym or an airport is to always be in somebody else's footage. And we all kind of know this, but this has a huge effect on how you think. It, this actually shapes the way you think about the world. And one of the things it does is it tends to lead to some real self-consciousness because we're constantly living our lives as though we're in front of a camera. Everything tends to be very performative these days. And I was talking to Nathan about this earlier. It used to be the case that one of the few places, even, I don't know, as as little as 50 years ago or something like that, one of the places where you would see yourself from a different angle would be a tailor's mirror or something like that. Walker Percy even has an observation in his book, Lost in the Cosmos, about how you see if you see yourself from a different angle, it's almost like looking at a stranger and how he's using this and he uses the Taylor's mirror as an example. And he says that he's using this as an example of how we are kind of a mystery to ourselves. It strikes me that 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 example itself. Now, we are a mystery to ourselves, but that example doesn't really work anymore because we are all so many of us actually I, don't, I would venture to say nathan probably isn't but most of us are very aware of what we look like from multiple angles and most of us well nathan and i are both in speaking ministries, so we've seen footage of ourselves and we hear recordings of ourselves all the time mm-hmm. but that's not an isolated incident i think more and more people i mean if you're if you're if you're recording a video if you're making some sort of a video you always want to watch it beforehand and make sure everything looks right. The angles are right. The lighting is right. I mean, I've seen people doing this and then you can, you can doctor it up. My point here is this has a profound effect on how we see ourselves and how we see the world. And it tends to lead to very heightened levels of self-consciousness.
1: Well, hang and on. So here. I think is,
0: part of what we're dealing with there is,
1: yeah. Well, all right, finish your thought. And then I want to, cause it's a, is is the self consciousness self focused though, or is our self consciousness focused on what we think other people think about the way that we look? So the there is a burden to self consciousness, but there's also a burden to the expectations that you think other people have about the way in which you should be appearing. So are those two different things, or is oh, that sure. the same I mean, thing?
0: I mean, I think they tend to bleed together, but you can definitely distinguish them. But I think, yeah, we're we're increasingly worried about what other people think of us, and because so much of what we I don't know how we, we release to the world. How do I want to say it is goes up like a kind of offering. And if it doesn't meet with the response that we want, yeah, that can, that can tend to lead to some real negative emotions, but also in a different sense, I there's, so it's both, I mean, there's, it's concerned about how other people view you, but then there also is just the genuine awareness, constant awareness of how you're feeling self-monitoring all the time that I think is new. I don't think mm-hmm. a blacksmith in the Middle Ages was navel-gazing in quite the way that we are now. The blacksmith in the Middle Ages, of course, didn't have nearly the time that we have at our disposal. That's a massive luxury <laughs> that we have these yeah. days. Didn't, didn't have the technologies that take away the pain, the physical pain that we deal with. I mean, it was basically just, you know, this was a whole different approach to life. But I'm, I'm just using that as, a, as an example of how novel I think this, this state of mind is to be this hyper-aware of yourself as a self and how it creates a tremendous burden. I know this, this runs the risk of sounding very abstract right now, so we can, but we can take it it, in some more practical directions, but
1: yeah, I think it does have some practical implications, but walk with me for a second, just through some. So this idea of being, of being able to recognize yourself and know what you look like is Or be able to conceive of yourself as an eye. If you look at, you know, writers on animal rights and thinking uh, Tom Regan's book, Self-Consciousness, like there's a big, does a dolphin recognize itself in the mirror kind of um, types of questions of of self-consciousness and understanding yourself as an individual and knowing what you look like. Uh, I just looked it up. Guess when the first modern mirror was invented? Um, So the silver glass mirror that you probably have in your bathroom. 1835. I'm not sure yeah so 1835 modern yeah yeah so i would i would one one, part of me wants to say that the vast majority of humans that have ever lived don't didn't know exactly what they looked like now Mm. you have um now there were bronze mirrors before that There even references you know paul has that now we see but a dim reflection is in a mirror um but that was a dim reflect a poor reflection in a mirror so he recognized that the the image that you saw in the mirror was not what you really looked like um i was thinking maybe one of the Early references, you have narcissists um, falling in love with his right. image by looking yeah. in the pool of water. So that's pretty far back yep. to see your reflection yep. in the water would would be a real possibility. But the um, the ability to always see pictures of yourselves and have, actually, I've seen more of myself now that we've been doing this podcast video than I have mm-hmm. probably yeah. beforehand, because often I walk through our bathroom in the morning when it's dark, and then I don't see what I look like for the rest of the day. Um, but the crazy thing is, is even when you look at yourself in a mirror, you, you see the mirror image of yourself. It's not what you look right. like. It's the it's flip not the about. living you. It, yeah. Yeah. It, so it's, it's the, and it's the opposite, like raise your right hand in the mirror and the hand comes up mm-hmm. on the sure. left side of, you know, the flip, um, or on the right side, but would be the left side of the mirror image of yourself. Um, mm-hmm. so, but I think by and large, the vast majority of people. D- didn't know what they looked like and I would imagine that that I mean probably everybody wanted to wrinkle out their shirt um get the wrinkles out of the shirt before they went to church but that <laughs> whether or not that was like a a massive part of their identity and it created a lot of anxiety I don't know it did seem like this is one well, of the areas me, where technology has massively monkeyed with the way in which we think yeah. about what it means to be one of what it is that we are
0: well let me run this backwards a little bit and try to tease out where this, I don't know, I don't want to call it a theory, <laughs> this idea comes from. So there, there was a book that came out in 2017, and it's called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, who teaches at Notre Dame University. And he argues that there are two major assumptions underlying our liberal political order. In the West. So basically just the the way we live and the and our default assumptions about human nature in the West. And one of them is that we're radically free autonomous creatures. And by the way, you can guess by the title of his book what he thinks of these two assumptions. It's it's called Why Liberalism Failed. So he obviously doesn't he doesn't endorse either of these. So one is that we're radically free individuals. But the other one, and this is the one I want to talk about a little bit, is that we are not part of nature. Because this has some interesting outworkings. We are not part of nature. We are in some ways even opposed to nature. This is an idea he's critiquing the thinker here. It's He's critiquing it. Right. So he says both of these are totally wrong. They're both wrong. And I'm gonna give you some faces to go with each of them because it's helpful to chart an intellectual history with actual faces. So The fact that we're the idea, the notion, the theory that we're and it is a theory that we're radically free, autonomous creatures. The real exponent of that is Thomas Hobbes, and you find the clearest expression in Leviathan. And the person who comes along and gives practical political shape to it is John Locke. So that's the that's where that comes from. But the other one, we're not part of nature; we're actually opposed to nature. Is actually Francis Bacon, who is a phenomenal thinker in the sense that just unbelievable blazingly brilliant very original very creative great writer just a you know a genius
1: and but has bacon very in his name. Very flawed
0: in some of the ways he thought has bacon in his name well the problem with francis bacon is that there's also this really grotesque british painter named francis bacon did you know that nathan and, and i'm not saying that insultingly his paintings are grotesque that's that's a description of the types of paintings that he does he's a he oh i think he lived in i think he was painting in the 1960s or something like that but yeah so very very dark paintings and these two tend to get mixed up because they're both called Fran, they're both francis bacon so I'll, I'll say sir francis bacon because that that's the <laughs> i'm thinking of the gentleman who wrote the new atlantis all right but sir francis bacon the pioneering scientist He's really he's a key figure in the development of what would come to be known as the scientific method. And he's mm-hmm. he's a huge mm-hmm. proponent of an inductive reasoning. Now, he came along and he did this at the right time because he was he was a little fed up with Ar- Aristotelian science. Because Aristotle was amazing, but he wasn't a really great scientist and <laughs> he didn't operate the way scientists do. These days. He was more committed to a kind of teleological vision. I don't want to get lost in the weeds there, but he he wasn't he wasn't taking nature apart, all right. And he wasn't actually examining things with instruments. This is where this is where Francis Bacon is key. But here's here's what I want you to bear in mind. With Francis Bacon, he brings in a whole new set of ways of looking at the world and metaphors. Metaphors are really dangerous because they can totally mislead you. And he takes us from thinking of ourselves as gardeners. So that's a that's a Christian vision. The creation creation Mm -hmm. mandate is that, you know, we essentially we are gardeners and we are vice regents. As you say, Nathan, we are stewards of the world around us. And the Lord has entrusted us with this task and we exercise dominion over nature, not domination. Well, with Francis Bacon, the vision does become one of domination. He is the one who sets us against, he, we are opposed to nature, we're in a different category, and nature now becomes a frontier for us to conquer. Now, he didn't have in mind the kind of problems that we see today, you know, ecological problems and all of that. Of course, he. I mean, he was, you know, we none of us can are fully aware of what our lines of thinking are going to unleash. Some people happen to be cursed with genius, and they bring in lines of thinking that can literally change the world, and it's not always great. So we begin to look at nature as something that we conquer. And so C.S. Lewis has a really helpful thought here in what I think is probably his most prophetic book, The Abolition of Man. And he points out, when we come to a place where we think we've conquered nature, now, side note, we, have, we, we haven't conquered nature. <laughs> so, But we, where we think we basically are in charge, we've conquered nature. You can't control I think yourself. You're probably not large, going to conquer nature. Right, exactly. But I think a lot of people do. The assumption is human beings are in charge. And I, I'm going to try to prove that to you in a second here. But we, when you come to a place where you think you've conquered nature, then you, the last frontier for you is going to be human nature. You conquered mm-hmm. nature, mm-hmm. now it's time to conquer human nature. And that's where we find ourselves right now. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to tear up any kind of human script that has been handed to us so by that I just mean all the givens of you know your gender, your your I mean your nationality, your name, you know your family, all of that. All of that is up for grabs now because we want to completely make ourselves. We want to completely redefine ourselves. I mean, the phrase for this is playing God, which is what we've been doing for a while, but now we're finally seeing that through to its. I think it's it's real logical conclusion and it's really radical. But the problem is when you do that, when you try to rewrite human nature. It destroys your mental health. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> I would. I actually don't like the phrase mental health. Always here, I, I would say what it's really doing is it's wrecking you spiritually. But it does. I mean, one of the outworkings is it destroys your mental health, and so then you come and then you come to a place where your selfhood, your identity, your consciousness becomes a tremendous burden to you. It's a burden in the sense that you have to shape it. It's a burden in the sense that it telegraphs to you all the time that you're not in control when you feel like you should be in control. It's a burden in the sense that anytime you're feeling any kind of pain or anything like that, it causes you unbelievable distress. It's a it's it's a problem for you in that you interpret all emotional distress as something catastrophic. In the history of the world, people have never done that. The blacksmith in the Middle Ages would have assumed pain is part of life, including psychic pain. But now we treat all of that as totally abnormal. And so that tends to lead us into, ironically, more pain. So, and I told you I'd try to prove something to you. Let me try to prove something real quickly, and then I'll hand it over to Nathan. But that's, (laughs) I want to prove to you that we think we're in charge. The notion that human beings are in charge might sound a little far-fetched to you. But we've come back, we've come to this thought a few times on Thinking Out Loud. What do we do when there's everything from a hurricane to a mass shooting? we start to scapegoat and point fingers and blame people the hurricane instance is really interesting because i think one of the last hurricanes there was a lot of murmur there were a lot of murmurings about how this is you know an indirect effect of global warming and then so we're responsible somehow we did this the second with mass shootings well we need tighter gun control laws and all that. Now, I'm not saying that these aren't legitimate discussions. They are. But my point here is your takeaway should be a hurricane, for instance, used to be referred to as an act of God. That mm-hmm. is utterly foreign to us now we, because we, we basically think we're in charge. So everything, everything, the fact that we blame everything on somebody shows how we think we should be, in, we're the ones in charge. Even if it's a hurricane, we should have, there's something we could have done to prevent it because that breach in the system, our system is a violation of our authority. We're the ones in charge. And so I think this is part of how we've we've come to a juncture now where there is so much fear because there's this sense that we should have conquered the world and ourselves. We haven't, and then also finding that if you try to press forward a vision of humanity that's malformed and is less than human, you're going to feel tremendous Spiritual pain. Let
1: me try this on you. So the idea of an image is extremely important in scripture, from humans being made in the yes. image of God all the way to Romans 8, famous one about the being predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. So the idea of image, you can't escape it. Um and then also it applies also to Jesus, image of the invisible God, and so forth. Colossians one, Hebrews one, Philippians two, you have all of these ideas of Jesus fully embodying uh, John 1, giving us a manifestation or an image of, of um, who God is. So the embodiment of an idea within a human, within a body, is a biblical concept hmm. um, that we would, we would embody and have an image to it. But how does the—I I guess if, if you don't think you're made in the image of God— and that the purpose of your life isn't to conform to the image of Christ you still will conform to some image so like there there mm-hmm. it's almost like worship like you will worship yep. something you just get to choose what you're worshipping um and so mm-hmm. it it seems like technology gives us the ability to manipulate our image with very little thought into whose image we're conforming into or maybe people do have an image of like oh hey i want to look like celebrity xyz so i'm going to get that haircut hairstyle whatever i want to look like this what i mean so is that a conscientious thing how is that new what are the benefits of that but i the, the main distinction i want to make is that we now speak about conforming our image physiologically whereas the biblical concept of forming an image has to do with character
0: yeah yeah well that's a very superficial shift then of course to a kind of cosmetic vision of image which has you know, been the case for a long time. But to make sense of this one, we got to go back to that first assumption that we're born radically free, autonomous creatures. It's just nonsense. And I think deep down, we all know it. I mean, this is common sense. You're born to parents, to everybody. You, you've, got, you've got parents. We've all got moms and dads. And you're, you're formed by the people around you and the places around you. Now, you're not entirely a product of your environment. But you are shaped significantly by that. We all know that, you know, family, friends, teachers, co-workers, schoolyard bullies, for better or for worse, the cast of characters in our lives shape us and they have to tell us who we are. When I was in high school, I was I thought I was going to be a singer in a black metal band and move to Scandinavia. And I thought I was this really dangerous, scary guy. It. There were about three English teachers who looked at my writing and said, no, that's not who you are. You belong in a library, not in some sweaty concert <laughs> hall. And you are a writer. And they were giving to me valuable insight about who I was that I didn't know. They were cluing me in. I didn't know it. Now, everything around you will tell you the opposite. The The wisdom of the age going back all the way to the... So that, here, let's get, let's put another face to this line of thinking. Everybody says, you know, follow your heart. Okay, that's not Disney, though. You know who that actually is? That's that's a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. <laughs> and that's really, that's said most eloquently, probably in his confessions. His confession, yeah, his confessions, which in some ways I think are styled like a self-conscious response to Augustine's confessions. But Rousseau is the, you know, the patron saint of saying, if you want to know, how to live an authentic life? You must look within. You gotta look inside yourself, and that and nobody can tell you who you are. Only you can answer that question. That's just trash. It's not true. You have <laughs> to have people telling you who you are. I mean, a young child, especially in the formative years, I mean, you don't know. They don't know who they are. They need they need your help. Now, you don't tyrannically impose some complete you know vision that they have to conform to in every way. But in some, but you are you are leading them. And you are showing them who they are. Yeah, ha- I mean, and we all need that. For and and this happens to all of us, for better or for worse. Now, some people are mistreated, and in those formative years, that's very damaging. That's so that person some people are malformed by others. But we are born as inescapably relational creatures so even if you grow up to be mr or mrs individualistic and you i follow my own you know i march to the beat of my own drummer i follow my own vision well that vision's coming to you from somewhere i mean mm-hmm. you've got some you've got some vision of rebelliousness as vital and powerful and amazing and conformity as stale and empty and hollow and hypocritical that came to you from somewhere you got it from someone all of the you know, I don't know all of the literary rebels I've, I've, you know, you I've admired in the past, or all the punks. They, they, they all got that from somewhere. It's not they didn't. You a funny version of, of this from inward resources.
1: Yeah, there, there was. A, yeah, so I forget where something in college we were reading. Um, it was something on feminism, and the author was saying there's some interchange where the lady got married and she took her husband's last name, and all of her feminist friends were like, we can't believe that you would take your husband's last name. And she said, well, I had two choices. I could take the last name of a guy I chose or take the last name of a guy my mom chose. <laughs> and, and so like when you put it like that, it's a little bit funny. So so you would say like, oh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a rebel. I'm going to not take the name of somebody else, but I'm going to mm-hmm. take the name that somebody else chose for me to take. Yep. You know, the, so it's, it's that kind of, and I'm not picking on that. It's just an isolated example of where we think we're making a free choice in rebellion often isn't a free choice It's we're, we're playing right into doing what we've been told by someone else. Um, yeah. I mean, or
0: you're, you know, I can pick, I'll pick on myself because that way I avoid offending. I, I try to avoid offending as many people as possible here. You know, when I, when I was in high school and I was a, you know, a scrawny, aggravating kid and I strolled into hot topic <laughs> at a mall And I bought all of my rebellion from those merchants. You know, what I was really doing wasn't so much rebellious as just being a part of the of just being a good capitalist. I mean, this was just really a market, (laughs) a good old consumer. I mean, right. I was just yeah buying band T-shirts. How rebellious. (laughs) I'm sure there's so many people who are just laughing all the way to the bank with my hard earned rebellious dollars. So, I mean. Now I'm not saying that there aren't there aren't genuine times to be countercultural. I think Christianity finds it Christianity is always countercultural because your allegiance is to Christ. But it's not a matter of I'm a person of no allegiances. I belong only to myself. It's a matter I mean in Christianity your countercultural status depends on your allegiance to Christ. And you, and Christians are forthright about and also Christians are are pretty big Paul was pretty big about hey Don't be a contentious, dangerous person. Be a good citizen, you know, be a law abiding Mm -hmm. citizen as long, you know, so far as you can be peaceful because Christians in his day had a reputation for, you know, for being seditious and dangerous because they didn't, you know, they didn't bow down to to Caesar. And that was a problem. And that's still the case. I mean, there are all sorts of household gods and Caesars we don't bow to now as well, but we still do our best to, you know, live, live in peace with everybody.
1: let me let me throw a, a side item in here. So you had mentioned to me that it's uh, some observations about or researcher. I don't know exactly what it was, where you said that um Gen Z is more worried about looking old than Millennials were, and, and I don't think this is yeah. tangential here. Fill us in a little bit on what the details no, are there yeah. and how you think this plays.
0: Yeah, I mean there was there was a tr- there's there were a couple of news stories that picked up on this, and if you Google it, you'll you'll find you'll find plenty of of writing on it, but a lot of women in, I think women in particular in their 20s were already doing skin treatments, Botox injections, and that sort of thing. But in their 20s, I mean, as young as 25 years old. So the outworking of that is it tends to age you. And so there was a lot of anxiety among people who were Gen Zers about looking older than millennials. And this led to all sorts of oh comedians picked it up and had a field day with it and all of that but it's it's a byproduct of people who have grown up in a world that is more performative than anything we've we've ever imagined where they've always people who grew up with image saturated in images of themselves uh, from every angle footage of themselves i mean oh, gosh cameron what, what are the here, pic- what think, are the format
1: about, of the pictures of you yeah. when you were a kid like a fi- what's a what's a 5 year old oh, right. picture it's, cameron yeah
0: right well i mean i can i can find if i dig long enough i can find one of those incriminating bathtub pictures somewhere in there but yeah they're all kodak you know they're they're stacks of physical they're they're in a shoebox under
1: your mom's guest bed somewhere or something
0: yeah who even knows where they are right now spiders are laying eggs in them at this moment but yeah the but so part of yeah and so part of what i was getting at here is you know to meddle a little bit i mean what are we all i mean so many of us with smartphones now what are we doing with all this footage of our children from the moment that i mean and they're they're seeing this footage they're watching videos of themselves and yeah i'm sure they're they're amazing memories and but they're again every no technology is neutral there are always unanticipated consequences here and so you're seeing some of the i think that this particular instance right here in this case women who are so young doing these treatments to you know to cater to an audience that's one that's that's one outworking now men are not exempt either Uh, i see i see this all the time i mean i'm in a gym on a regular basis i mean you want to talk about a place where you're always in somebody else's footage it's just like you're walking across the the image i have is of somebody trying to break into a high security sort of building like a Mission Impossible movie where there, there are these multiple little thin red laser beams everywhere. That's that's the way it is when you're walking through a gym. You're always walking through somebody's shot and it's, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, but again, that's that's an outworking of this kind of performative way of looking, but it tends to lead to huge self-consciousness as well. A lot of people, by the way, are increasingly, with regard to the gym, are are afraid to go to a gym because they don't want to be in somebody else's footage, or or in that, or in some cases, filmed without themselves being aware of it, and then mocked later on. That happens all the time. It doesn't just happen mm-hmm. in gems, but gems are a conspicuous example. So, yeah. is
1: this is is the is the genius or the staying power of of Greek mythology um, or any mythology that narcissus is alive and well? It, that's that's my yeah. first question. So, <laughs> the, the the ability to yeah. fall in love with your with your own image and or traft, try to craft mm-hmm. your image into something that's loved or that you can love, I guess it's not quite narcissism. um. Because so, I mean, that's, that's one warped form of self-worship, but then like the, the burden of thinking that you have to be a certain way in order to be loved by other people. Yep. There you go. Yeah. That's the, that's the second. I mean, so I think all yeah. of this for me is, like, so there's a way in which we could look at it and be giggle, giggle. Like, okay, this is sad. You have people in their 20s injecting toxins into their face to change the size of their lips or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Ha ha. Or you say, what kind of messed up world do we live in where people think that that's the necessary step in order to be accepted and affirmed and valued yeah. and loved? So, again, this is one of those where I think as a Christian looking at this, I, I don't come into it as like it's scary or that it's silly. It's just more like a sadness of like sad. Yeah. Shoot. I hate that for you that you think you need to do that. And then not only to imbo- well, not only I mean, to say that, but then don't participate in the elements of society and the economy that foster um super narrow visions of what it means right. to be human and unrealistic visions of perfection and all the other blah that goes along with it. Well, the other
0: I'm gonna come back to something I said earlier. I mean, the water's warm over here in the church. <laughs> you can you can take your personhood for granted when you're a Christian in the best possible way. You don't have to make yourself into anything. You are freed of that burden. It's a burden you've never been meant to carry anyway. The givens of your life, your very life itself, you know, you didn't, nobody listening to this podcast had a choice in the matter of whether they were born or not. And there are people nowadays who act like that's an absolute outrage, that the the universe has somehow played some vicious trick on them. That's an extremely poisonous philosophy. It really is. And if we're thinking in those terms, we're playing, we're trying to play God, but you're not, you're not meant to be, you're not meant to be God. So the best the solution to this is to is to free yourself from that burden. You don't need to accept that burden. Now I know it's sounds like it's easier said than done, but in some but it is actually it is it actually isn't that hard. But you do have to let go of some of these notions, but once you do that it's incredibly incredibly freeing and you can rest in the humanity that has been given to you as a gift from your lord rather than trying to craft something on your own that people may or may not accept and that you, that may, that will likely cause you a whole lot of pain in the process.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we, can we distinguish helpfully here between looking, um, uh, stewarding your body well, um, of taking care of yourself, sure. of being professional, of being courteous, of being respectful, um, and organized in a way that isn't, distracting in the in the work that you're trying to do without that turning into a, an entire idol and industry and manipulator of your time um that seems to be the challenge i was thinking that uh, my family over the years has known someone who's a very very accomplished wood carver um and specializes in in birds and and they're phenomenal like it's just amazing when somebody has an artistic talent like that um He was once in a very large competition with a, it was a parrot that was on a mahogany branch, like a jungle scene. And um, Mm -hmm. he got third place in the competition because the, the wood that he used, like the branches that the parrot was sitting on had termite damage in them. And he loved it because he had carved the termite damage. It wasn't real termite damage. He did that. And so he got third place and was ecstatic because the reason he didn't get third is because of his skill. Like the yep. judges thought that the termite damage so that real. he carved was real. He <laughs> yeah. was just real. And so for yeah. him as an artist, that was like, huzzah. But the one time I, my dad almost smacked him in the head, like in a funny way is he's, he's like, he's like, I can't, he's watching him carve a bird. and He's like, I can't believe he's, he's talking about how complicated it was. And the, and the guy carving looked up at my dad and he said, no, it's not hard at all. He said "I just carve away everything that doesn't look like a bird." <laughs> you're like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. Well, all right, fine. yeah, all right. well, if, if that's what you can do there, um, I, I think that is a, a valuable thing though, when we think about our discipleship of what are you what are you adding on to and what are you taking what, what does it mean to carve away everything that doesn't look like Christ in your life? And that doesn't mm. require a mirror or a smartphone or a selfie or a tailor's mirror or looking into a reflected water or a pool. the self consciousness that we're supposed to be pursuing. Self-control, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Um, those are all, we do have standards, that, but they're all in terms of our character, not in terms of the things that make us more marketable or palatable. Or um, And so again, it's a, it's a sadness. I think that there are the drive. We do need to be formed into something. We do need to have goals. We are intended to grow. We are intended to develop. We are intended to contribute to uh, the world around us. We're intended to be in a relationship with things that transcend us with God we're intended to be in proper relationship with other humans. So these are all things that are given to us and we're invited into as a form of beauty and at each step along the way we have the seeming capacity as humans to mess up and to do an inward curl with each of those elements mm-hmm. and say actually this is all about me and then in doing so we aren't functioning in the way that God intended us for us to be and so there's a great sorrow there I think to use Cameron's words from earlier then it's, it's destructive from a mental health angle because you're trying to be your own God. You're trying to justify your own existence. You're trying to make yourself lovable. Um, and you're trying to live under the burdens of everyone else's expectations of what you should look like and be like, and, and that's a tough spot to live. And so I think when Jesus is saying, come to me or come follow me, there's an invitation out of that. Um, That is super freeing, and that's why people often, I think, have that sensation of coming to Christ as being a very freeing thing. If you listen to the language of people who talk about submitting to Christ and then becoming free uh, from the outside looking in, that's a very odd sequence of language of I gave my life to the Lord and the truth has set me free. Um, It doesn't seem like it, but that is actually functionally how that works in our relationships in the way in which we think about ourselves, who we are, what it means to be human and what it means to have the fullness of life. So I think we ran a great big circle to basically come back around to some very simple biblical truths here. But we wanted to highlight and point out that many of the things that you see in the culture around you as it pertains to image um, are sad. Um, and that we that, that those are things and where in a place where we as Christians are standing on solid ground and can invite people into uh, being fully known and fully loved for who God sees them to be. And then also, to throw this out there as a warning to ourselves that we wouldn't be trapped and ensnared by things that distract us from pursuing christ likeness in our character um, at the expense of our image so anyway i hope that's been helpful to you it's been helpful to me thank you cameron for your um, pontifications there you've been listening to thinking out loud a podcast where we think out loud about current events and christian hope thanks for
0: listening to thinking out loud if you'd like to learn more about what we do book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.